This morning, once again, in Amos chapter 9, looking at verses 5 through 10, and we're dissecting this. And we looked at part of it last week, we're going to look at part of it this week, we'll look at part of it at least next week. The Lord shakes, and no pebble falls, part 2. Now I want to remind you, quickly, this morning... That the reason that we find ourselves in the position that we find ourselves in in the book of Amos is because the sin of Jeroboam the first was not simple demonic paganism, but instead he intended to refashion God in the manner that he needed him to be. And so he raised up these two golden calves and he says, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim that brought you forth from Egypt, having the immutable standard of righteousness, the unchanging standard of righteousness, removed from the midst of the nation, they fell into the vilest of depravity, truly something that can only be described as madness, a madness of believing their own deceitful hearts and believing what their thoughts were and believing what their feelings were above the truth of God that was set before them. And so, generations later, during the reign of Jeroboam's namesake, this time Jeroboam II, and two years before the earthquake, Amos, the shepherd from Tekoa, just outside of Jerusalem, didn't simply hear, but he saw the word of God. For the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. And all of this occurs when a very partial God shows no partiality, for there is an anger that comes out of love stronger than any that comes out of hate. And so the word of Amos to the people of northern Israel is a word of woe, particularly to those who are the least willing to be woeful, those who feel at ease and those who feel secure, for their feelings do not match reality. For in reality, they are neither at ease nor secure. And they continue, somewhat illogically, unto destruction. And they do so because they're able to maintain this kind of mindset. Because they have redefined who God is and they, as the prophet said, bring their God in their own hand. When you have constructed for yourself a God that looks an awfully lot like you, then in reflection you look awfully righteous, even when in fact you are not. In the book of Amos, such provocation makes a holy God swear. And having none greater to swear by, he swears by himself. He swears the promise of salvation to his people and he swears death to those who would trample it underfoot. The word that Amos sees, and I think we can all agree with this at this point. I mean, we've been in Amos for a while. The word that Amos sees is a hard word. It is a difficult word. It's not easy 
You shouldn't pretend that it is. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that it is absolutely at least heretical and just almost certainly blasphemous to view it as an easy word. <laughs> to say, oh yeah, this, you know, because the Lord said it, this is okay. No, the point of God saying what he's saying in Amos is that it's not okay. <laughs> That's the point. He sees a hard word. A word that the text itself says is an unbearable word. And yet, in the strength of the Lord, Amos, as well as all the people that fear God himself, will absolutely bear it. Now, silence will fall in Israel. And this morning, I hope that where we're at last week and, and then this week and, and moving into next week, my, my prayer is that this will be as, I hate to even use the word real because that seems insufficient. I hope this will be as impactful, I hope it will be as weighty for you as the Lord has caused it to become for me. It's not just that silence will fall in Israel. We can read Amos and we can read it in its historical context and say that the prophet came and said that because you have done this, silence is going to fall in Israel. But the reality is, is from where we are at in our standpoint in history, silence has fallen in Israel. It's not just that it will. He said it would back here in the timeline. It did back here in the timeline. And now we are here in the timeline. It's not just that silence would fall in Israel. Silence has fallen in Israel. And it's the silence of the last thing in the world you would want to be silent, it is the silence of the word of God that is the effectual means of salvation. No word, no redemption. For you cannot outrun God. So in Amos chapter 9 verse 2, the Lord says, If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. And if they climb up to heaven from there, I will bring them down. And if they hide themselves on the top of Carmel from there, I will search them out and take them. It's interesting to me that he uses that turn of the phrase, speaking about the heights of Carmel. And if they hide there, seeing how at the very beginning when Amos saw the word of the Lord, he said he roars like a lion and the heights of Carmel wither. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. There was a point in the timeline when the prophet said, 
that there would be a famine of the word, that silence would fall in Israel. There was a point when that silence fell. And now we're at a point where we're looking back at that reality that silence has fallen. But after the moment that he proclaimed that silence would fall before its actual falling, there was a moment when the Lord was singing over his people. And he was singing Psalm 46 in Psalm 104. This is where we were last week. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, if you're going to go with Amos, and we should, then you have to accept the fullness of what God is singing over them. And you go, well, but Amos only chose a portion of what God was singing over them out of Psalm 46 and 104. And I would argue that the reason that he chose that portion is because that portion that he chose is the portion that the flesh of the natural man would reject. See, the rest of it's easy. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very pleasant help in trouble is easy for the flesh of men to hold on to. The Lord spoke to Amos, the part of Psalm 46 and Psalm 104 that is difficult for men to hold on to. God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Isn't it interesting to you? It's interesting to me. Isn't it interesting to you how the... Society as a whole today is happy to speak about God when he makes wars cease to the end of the earth and breaks the bow and shatters the spear, but are not happy to speak about the same God when literally in the same breath... He says, come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. 
Man, we're just like Jeroboam. We want to pick and choose. We need you to be like this. You've said you're like this, but we need you to be like this. And by golly, if anybody wants to point out that you're not like this, that you're actually like this, we'll fight you about it. There is nothing less holy. There is nothing less righteous. There is nothing, and hear me now, there's nothing less joyful There is nothing less righteous, nothing less holy, and nothing less joyful about a God who brings desolations as there is about one who burns the chariots with fire. And the reason that you and I have a problem with that is because of you and I. It's not because of Him. He's perfect. He's perfect. And we're not. And so when his standard gets held up and we look at stuff that he does and go, whoa, I don't like that. The reason we don't like it is because we fall short of him. And if, if I'm going to be honest with myself, the reason that I don't like it is because I see stuff in what he is saying that would reflect on me. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so... The Lord sings over his people in the midst of destruction. What do you do with that? He sings over his people in the midst of destruction. In Amos chapter 9, verse 5, the Lord God of hosts. He who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again and like the Nile of Egypt who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He sings over his people a song that they do not want to hear. And then, in verse 9, he says this, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. 
those who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. The Lord is singing over his people a song of destruction and judgment. And then he says, here's what it's going to look like when it comes. I'm going to take them like a sieve. You've all got one. I can remember my mama's house when I was a kid. It was there till the day she died. Man, for 40 some odd years, there was this one, you know, had the Bakelite handle. See, some of, if you, if you, if you're not wearing bifocals, you probably don't know what Bakelite is. Early, early, early plastic. Turns out, like a lot of stuff that is uh, uh, ecologically unsound, let's say, it turns out to really be the best stuff. Like, you basically can't tear it up. My great-granny had Bakelite cups that you could take and bounce down this road out of the back of a truck and pick them up, and the worst they'd have on them was a scratch. Had a Bakelite handle, and it had a little sieve on the end, a little stainless steel wire basket on the end, and that's what she strained her tea in, and she didn't ever really wash it properly. She just kind of rinsed it out, or if Mama would say wrenched it out, underneath the, the, the water in the faucet and chunked it in the dish drainer because she didn't have a dishwasher. So it was all stained and beat up. Everybody knows what a sieve does. It separates things. In that case, it was tea. You know, you boil it in a little pot, you pour the tea out, and the fines get caught up in the sieve, and you press them out. And that way, Papa doesn't start, you know, flicking his top plate of his dentures because stuff stuck underneath it, which is, a, you know, kind of a nice way of saying the tea's gritty. Shake it. You know, the, the idea of God separating is far from an uncommon concept in Scripture. We see it everywhere. I mean, you could quote a, a, a stack this deep. We, for, for this morning's purpose, we'll look in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9 through 12, where John the Baptist says, do not presume to say to yourselves, and man, I got to tell you, when it comes to looking at what Jeroboam did, when it comes to looking at what the tendency of mankind has to do with assuming on who God is, I think that this statement that John makes at the very beginning about not presuming to say to yourselves is a weighty statement. Do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And so here's the same concept, except for now, instead of talking about the sieve with stuff like 
tea or, or flour. He's talking about a little broader picture with the winnowing fork and winnowing out the grain where you've cut the grain down at the time of harvest and it's dried and you, you take it and they, they rolled the stone over it and busted it off the heads and all that sort of thing. And they would take what was basically a glorified pitchfork and throw it up in the air and it would allow the chaff, all the parts that you can't eat, like literally as a human can't eat, It'll kill you to blow away in the wind, and the grain itself would fall back down on the floor. There's a separation here. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so here's this picture of who Christ is. Now, remember, this is John the Baptist himself who is the Elisha, if you are willing to accept it, who is the one to come, that is speaking about the coming of the Christ. And he says, let me tell you something, boys. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And what that is, is the, excuse the cliche, the proverbial drop in the bucket to what's coming. Because what's coming is one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, his, his separator, in which he will separate the wheat from the chaff, one he takes into his barns, the other he burns. If you want to look at this concept of separation in the midst of God's creation by the Savior himself, you will find it all over scripture from one end to the other. What's interesting is this. What's interesting is the concept of the sieve. Not simply the idea of separation, but the concept of the sieve by which we will load it up with some material and then undulate it so that the two parts are separated where they remain in isolated areas and then we're going to do one thing with one part and another thing with another. The concept of the sieve is extremely unique. The concept of separation, the winnowing fork, the sheep and the goats, all over scripture. The concept of the sieve is specific. Now, I use the sieve at least one time, if not twice, every single day. One of the first things I do every morning, I get up and, you know, I let the dogs out and get a drink of water and check the headlines on the computer and sit down and open up my Bible and then at some point in time I'm going to go make a cup of coffee for Sarah. And we've got one of those fancy little espresso machines where you make it, you know, one cup at a time. And so I use a sieve at least once a day. Typically two or three times a day. We probably drink more coffee than we should. I use it at least once a day. And it's a really fine one. Man, it will really separate the stuff out. Man, it's got a little tool. You tamp it down, pack it, 
supposed to be 35 pounds. I don't keep a scale in my kitchen to push on. I give it a good guess. Call it a day. And every single time I'm using it, and you can come to my house right now, and it will pay testimony to what I'm going to tell you. You can come to my house right now, and what you will find is that when I use a sieve to make coffee, that some of it escapes. Some of it escapes. Man, you take a real burr grinder, turn that thing down to about an eight, which is where it needs to be, and buzz that stuff up, man, some of it will blow away on the wind. You go to tapping it into that sieve, some of it comes over the sides. If you're going to tamp it down and have it be at the, the right level when you get it tamped, then that means before you tamp it, it's all piled up like a mound on top. Man, this stuff is like dust. It gets away from you. You can go to my house right now, and the seam along the edge of the sink has got at least a pencil eraser size if you took a knife and scraped it out full of coffee grounds under it because some of it gets away. It spills over. It doesn't necessarily become coffee. It doesn't necessarily get thrown in the dump. It gets away. It spills to the ground. Because that's what happens when imperfect men use a sieve. It's not just that there's one option or two. There's actually a third and so, you know, you'd have the one option, which in this little analogy would be you stay in the portafilter and get converted to espresso, which is good or bad, depending on your position. The guy that writes my blood pressure medicine script would probably prefer I drink less. I like it. Some of it gets discarded into the waste bin. But with men, some of it gets away. But when God shakes the sieve, none of it gets away. None of it gets away. This is the whole point he was making when he was quoting from the Psalms in verses 2 through verse 4 that, buddy, you can run, you can hide, but you will never get away from me. And so the reality is, for behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. There is no third option. You, and here's the deal. What's crazy to me is when you read the commentary on these couple of verses, everybody wants to argue about, is it the stuff that stays in the sieve that is blessed? Or it is the stuff that goes through that's discarded? That is a pointless argument. <laughs> what he is saying is, for me and you, there is one of two realities. There is no third option. 
I will refine you. I will shake you. I will sieve you out. And you don't get the opportunity to punt and be stuck under the lip of the sink. That's not how it works. You're either going into the cup or you're going into the trash. One of the two. Nothing in between, man. I'm messy with my coffee. I've stained that counter so bad. My mama, she'd be upset. She made me take my shoes off when I came in the front door. Didn't want to get it on the carpet. She wouldn't like it. I've stained that sucker up, man. It flows over the edge of that sieve. It doesn't with God's. Not a pebble will fall to the ground. He's going to separate them. And when he separates them, it's either going to be for salvation or damnation. There's no middle ground. There's no punt. If you keep up with the World Cup, which, thank you, Lord, you've not given me a propensity to that, there is no draw. It's win or lose, man. It's win or lose. God's sieve is not man's sieve. None of the fines fall to the ground. Now, having said that, everybody thinks that's a... Maybe you do, I don't know. I thought it was a deep point. Sounded like a deep point to me. But it's not the deepest point. Because with that in mind... Speaking about national Israel, once again, with this timeline, here's what the prophet said that was going to happen. It actually did happen, and now we're at a place where we're looking back and going, silence has fallen in Israel. Not that it will, but it has. I would have you note that I do not believe, I believe this based on Scripture, I'm going to show you here just in just a second, so please don't think this is just my opinion. It is not sufficient to consider Israel simply as a national whole. Even though much of the promises were made to them as a national whole. It is not sufficient to consider them simply as that. In other words, what I'm saying is this. It, it, it would not be okay to take Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26 into isolation and say, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And so on one hand, we've got Amos, who is recording God singing 
psalms of destruction over his people. And on the other hand, we've got Paul in Romans saying, hey, look, don't, don't think that, that you're wise in your own sight. Don't look at this as some kind of replacement theology that says God has forgotten about Israel, but understand that He's hardened them until the fullness of Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So on one hand, we've got Amos saying, look, damnation is coming. Silence will fall. On the other hand, we got Paul going, hey, listen, this is God's plan for the way that they will all be saved. And what I would tell you is if you take those two things into your mind and put them together in nothing less than fleshly logic, what you will walk away with is, well, that's okay. That's okay. Indifferent. This was the plan. This was the purpose. This is the way they're being saved. That's fine. You know, here's the deal. There was a day when Israel was condemned, but there's going to be a day when they're saved. So we're good with that. Because from the church in America's standpoint today, we don't think we've really got any skin in the game because after all, we're just a bunch of former Gentiles. The reality is that the Apostle Paul, who would say, not of his own accord, but according to the Holy Spirit, that he was imitating Christ, the reality is that his heart was breaking. Breaking over the fact that silence had fallen in Israel. Man, it was eating his lunch. Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Man, I have spent more of my professional pursuit of the scripture considering the manner of Paul's writing than any other single author and if I may speak so boldly I will tell you that when he uses words like unceasing anguish he means it he means it great sorrow this is a guy that could yield the Greek vocabulary like a sledgehammer. Unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. It is not sufficient for us to consider... While God makes promises to Israel as a national whole, absolutely true, just like he makes promises to the church 
as a whole. While God makes promises to national Israel as a whole, we would be remiss and apart from the heart of Christ if we were only to consider their circumstance as a national whole. Because what you're talking about here is a nation that is made up of individuals. Real people. Look, this informs the way that we look at the nations. This informs the way that we look at, at missions. I mean, this is it. It's not just, well, hey, look. And, and hey, let me tell you something. You want to you talk about what missions looks like? I'll tell you what missions looks like. What missions looks like is this. We are going forth. We are spending blood and money. And if we're not spending blood and only spending money, then we are not doing it sufficiently. We're going forth and we're spending blood and money in order to inform the elect that they are the elect. Now that's reality. And if you don't like it, you can take it up with the sovereign God that made it reality. Please don't take it up with me. I'll talk to you about it. But don't blame me for it. I'm just a talking donkey. However, however, if you can approach that subject with indifference to the actual people that are dying in their sin, then you need to go take that up with the same sovereign God. Because that's his heart. It is reflected in his people by his spirit. He is not indifferent and we are not indifferent. You know, how do you put those two things together? Because he's bigger than you. It is not sufficient for us to consider Israel as a national whole just because promises are made to them as a national whole. And by the same context, man, would we consider each other that way? Man, when things get tough for you or you or you or you or you or me, would we consider each other that way? We don't consider each other that way. We go, man, look. Things are tough right now for you. There's some real danger here. There's, there's a place where your foot may slip. And it's specific to you and, and, and I care about you. Man, these are real people. By the millions While the nations may remain across the expanse of time and generation, the reality is that what is being spoken in Amos are being spoke to very real people at a very specific time in a very specific place. 
They're, they're, they're fathers just like your fathers. They're mothers just like your mothers. They're children just like your children. And not one of them will fall to the ground. Not one of them will make it underneath the lip of the sink. They will all face one of two ultimate realities. And the only difference between you and them is the grace of God that chose to put you here in the timeline instead of here. That's it. Here's what's crazy. Is the word for... While while the concept... I thought this was going to be a short sermon. I thought last week's was going to be a short sermon. While the concept of God separating between his people has continuity from Genesis to the Revelation, the statement of the sieve is very finite. So finite, in fact that it happens one time in the entirety of the Old Testament, and that's in Amos chapter 9. That's it. Doesn't get used anywhere else. Not, not one other time. That's it. Just Amos chapter 9, verse 9. As one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. That's the only time it's ever used. Now, that's pretty amazing. There are just there are tens of thousands of words used in the Old Testament, and this word gets used one time. Interestingly enough, its Greek counterpart in the New Testament gets used one time. And while in the Old Testament he is speaking about a nation, in the New Testament he's speaking about an individual person. It's in Luke chapter 22. Verse 31 Simon, Simon. Now look. Everybody knows when dad calls you by your whole name, things aren't going well. The Lord is christened him as Petros. And so anytime he reverts back to the name his daddy gave him, things could be better. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you It's an identical parallel from the Greek to the Hebrew. 
and they both get used one time. Once of a nation full of individual men, and here particularly of an individual man, but not just any individual man, one of the men, one of the twelve, the rock upon which I will build my church. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you, he might sieve you like wheat. Now look, at this point in time, if you're going to do the whole Jeroboam, the first thing, and say, this, O Israel, is thy Elohim who led you out of Egypt, then what you're going to do is edit verse 32. Because if you're going to remake God in your own image so you can bring him in your hand, verse 32 is not what you want him to be. What does he say? Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, if you're going to make God in your own image so that you can bring God in your own hand... What we're going to do here is something very different. It's not going to be, hey, listen, Pete. Satan has asked for you that he might sift you, that he might separate you like wheat. And just a little quick background here. I'm not sure which one is bad, whether you go through the sieve or whether you stay in it. But whichever one it is, at this point in Peter's existence, all of it's going to be in one place. He is not a born-again man. Whichever one is going to be the one that gets chunked in the fire is going to be the place that he remains. And so put yourself in Peter's position. Who do you want God to be? I mean it. Because listen, Mount Zion, we're leaving Amos and we're going to Matthew and it doesn't get any easier. And so I'm going to act because, golly, if there's a place where Christ shows you his heart, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm asking you, who do you want Christ to be? Do you want him to be what you want him to be or do you want to be what he says he is? Because if I'm Peter at this point... And Jesus comes to me and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded you that he might sift you like wheat. The very next word I want to hear out of his mouth is, but I told him no. Because that's me. Creator, sustainer. Colossians chapter 1, all things for me, through me, for my glory, holding together your being, holding together Satan's being, do with him whatever I want. And so Lord, if you're my Lord, what I want you to do is when he demands that, tell him to shove off. No, you can't touch him. You know what Jesus says? I pray for you. I pray for you. What do you think, James? I pray for you.
You go, man, that doesn't sound very sufficient. Well, let me tell you something. The prayers of a righteous man are effectual in the things that they seek. You know why? Because righteous men, by definition, are asking according to the will of whose standard is righteousness. So what do you think happens when the one who is actually righteous is the one who is asking? Well, let me tell you what happens. What happens if you're Peter is you get sifted. You get smashed through the sieve by the single most evil being that has ever existed. And you do so all because Christ himself said, yeah. Christ loves Peter. To the... You understand Christ loves Peter to the point. He loves Peter to the shattering of bone and the breaking of marrow as Roman nails are being driven through. You know what love looks like? I'll pray for you. You know how effectual love is? Here's how effectual it is. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Guys, let me tell you what Peter is at this point. Peter is a Walmart lawn chair. And he's going to fold just like one. Me and Mark here, what we don't need to be doing is flopping down hard in a Walmart lawn chair. Go south on us every time. Man, you flop down in that thing hard, I guarantee you what the outcome's going to be. It won't hold you up. As a matter of fact, and I, hey, I buy them. I take them to the river. You know, if they get washed away, you only lost 17 bucks. Well, these days it's probably 42, but whatever. Right? <laughs> But let me tell you, I ease down in them. Huh? You don't flop down in them. This ain't your couch at the house. Peter at this point, man, he's about to fold like a cheap lawn chair. Man, he is going down. He won't make it a day. He won't make it a day. He's going to spit on the ground. He's going to curse and say that I, ever, I never even knew him. What's about to happen is what Peter needs. It's not what he wants. It's 
It's not what you would want for you. It's not what I want for me. It's certainly not what I want for anyone that I care about. It's not what I want for my wife. It's not what I want for my kid. Christ knows better. And so he looks at Peter and says, big boy, what you're going to get is the sieve. You know why? Because you're a cheap lawn chair. You know, man, that doesn't sound very loving. No, let me tell you something. It's the height of love because what he's about to do is play Satan like a cheap fiddle and use the difficulty and the pain that Peter is about to go through to ensure that his soul is saved. And so you know what? You had a bad day, Pete. You had a bad day. When you get to heaven, you can ask Peter. I don't know how long it'll take. It'll take a long time. I don't know how long it'll take before you have any interest in anything other than Christ. And as a matter of fact, you won't even then. This will be the extension of your interest in Christ. <laughs> you can ask him, was it worth it? Look what he says in verse 14. Now this is, there's a lot of sermon here we're not going to get to, so that, yeah. But look what he says in verse 14. I want you to put this in context of what is happening in the, the sieving of Peter because, look, this exists twice in Scripture. What you're seeing with an individual man in the book of Luke is the reality that is happening with millions of individuals in the book of Amos. And so here we get the microscope view, the little up close that lets us see what is going on like from, you know, from the bench. Right in the midst of this. Is communion. Isn't it funny? I will do this for your evil and not for your good. Let me sing over you. <laughs> Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, and I'm going to let him. Communion. When the hour came, he reclined at table with the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, the cup that it, this is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He goes as it has been determined. You got the apostles, one of whom is Peter, who is 
previously spoke the words of Satan, and Jesus had to tell him, get behind me, Satan, and is now going to be sifted by Satan. None of them are saved, and one of them is the betrayer. And yet, he goes, as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. God is sovereign. Christ goes as has been determined. But men are responsible. Woe to him by whom he is betrayed. And the reason that I won't exegete today is because the means by which men act according to God's sovereign choice is nothing less than the desire of their own heart. And when you're acting according to desire, not because you're a puppet on the string, but because you want to, it doesn't make you less guilty, it makes you more. Now check it out. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them of which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now isn't that a train wreck? (laughs) Right in the middle of all of this, we need to have a sidebar to figure out, seeing how Peter is looking like he's going down hard, which one of us is going to be the greatest? He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now listen. I assign to you as my Father assigned to me I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Do you think that the judgment of Israel in Amos is too harsh? And really what we're asking by that is, do you think that the judgment of Israel in Amos was too harsh because of the way that it reflects on your possible judgment? And if you can answer that question with a yes, then my follow-up question to you would be this. Will then you 
abdicate the throne of judgment when he offers for you to sit on it. That's the promise he swore by himself. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. But those who did receive him, he gave the rights to become the children of God. And he would set them on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Why? Well, the why is because that as it has been assigned to me, so I assign to you. So when when we look back at, at Amos and we look at the judgment that is coming upon people that are very real people, please hear me, they are very real people. This is not just some kind of national blanket statement. A nation is made up of, you know, I mean, a kingdom is defined by its king, its territory, and its subjects. These are very real subjects. These are very real people. Do you think, if you think his judgment is too harsh, will you abdicate the throne that he offers to you? Because when Paul said, imitate me as I'm imitating Christ, that's the imitation of Christ. To the point that you have to be so broken about the reality of judgment that you're willing to die to make atonement for those that are being judged. You want to understand, and I'll just be honest with you, we don't have a clue we don't have a clue what is going on with the majority of these people that are spoken of in Israel. You know, if we want to talk about them as individuals, we, we don't know. What we do know is this, is that they're sinners and, and, and sinners die apart from the mercy of God. We know that. But we don't know their story. They all had one. There were tens if not hundreds of thousands of them that were flayed alive by the Assyrians. They all have a story. They're all somebody's kid. Most of them had a kid. They all had a story. They were all a person. They, they were all a person that you would want to have the opportunity with to, to plead with to turn from evil and turn towards righteousness. But the reality is, is that for the most part, we don't know them. Like almost exclusively, we don't know them. We can look to a couple of, a couple of narratives in the Old Testament 
and get and get a little bit of an idea, but that's it. But we know Peter. We know a lot about Peter. And so here you have the sieve in the Old Testament that's talking about millions. Here you have the sieve in the New Testament that's talking about this one dude. In John chapter 6, verse 58, Jesus says of himself, this is best I can tell the most controversial sermon he ever preached. It certainly caused the greatest exodus of people that were following him of anything he ever did. He says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? I mean, I really honestly think this is the question that Amos poses for us today more than anything else. It's how they got in the position they were in. It's how they continued into it unto their destruction. And I got to tell you, honestly, I believe it is the position that the majority of the church in America is today. Now, that's not thus saith the Lord. That's thus saith Brian. But I got to tell you, that's thus saith the pastor. So the pastor's opinion... You can take it or leave it. Really, you can. You can take it or leave it. But i got to tell you, I think it's the position of the majority of the church in America today. Do you take offense at this? Man, i got to tell you, I'm, I'm fearful. Patrick, I'm fearful, buddy. I'm fearful that the, the reality is that if most of them were going to answer honestly, they would say, yes, I do. Yes, I do take offense at this. And while that makes me has while that makes me angry and it has for a long time, let me tell you what it's doing more and more and more all the time is breaking my absolute heart. Why would you take offense at him? Why? You wouldn't exist without him. He spoke you into existence. He holds you together. He sacrifices his own lifeblood in order to purchase you from his own standard. Why would you take offense at that? Well, it's hard. Well, so what? All the good things are hard. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now see, that kind of question right there is the reason I asked the question earlier. If you have an issue with God's judgment in Amos, will you abdicate the throne when he says that one's yours? What if you saw him ascending? 
to where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. Hey, let me tell you something, Christians. We better be ready to be big boys and big girls. There is stuff that is going to be required of us that we can't even wrap our heads around right now. What do you think it's like to sit on a throne and judge an angel? Are you up to the task? I'm not. You better believe that he has the ability to make you up to the task. Ice man, you ain't up to the task, son. You better lean in hard. Now look, I'm not giving you a hard time. I'm excited for you. Let me tell you, when it comes to me and her, I'm not up to the task. When it comes to this pulpit, not up to the task. How about you? You up to the task? You be the husband you're supposed to be? Can you be the dad you're supposed to be? Can you be the wife you're supposed to be? The mom you're supposed to be? Can you be the kid you're supposed to be? Can you be the witness you're supposed to be? Is your work ethic proficient to proclaim the kingdom to those that you work with? The answer is no. If we're just going to consider you of yourself alone, me of myself alone, you are not up to the task. Let me tell you, when that false priest looked at Amos and said, your word the land cannot bear, he was right. He was right. It cannot be born. Not of you and not of me. It'll either be born by him in us or it will not be born at all. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Well, you know, my papa was one stubborn dude to a fault. And if you knew his mama, you would know why. And I didn't know her mama, but I've read some stories. I got a pretty good idea where she got it from. And you can look all the way back and you can trace it all the way back. Trace it all the way back through Noah. You can trace it all the way back to Adam. Your flesh is not an excuse. As a matter of fact, it's the very thing that brings condemnation.
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now, keep the context in your head. You literally just had 25,000 people walk away. 25,000. Not 25, you know. We got like 98 people here this morning, right? Okay, yeah, 25,000 people just walked away because they did not like what he had to say. And so here you got pretty much the 12 at this point. There may be more than that. You may have kind of the entourage that's attached. I'll give you that. But pretty much the ones he's talking to are the 12. There are some of you, even among those that remained, that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. Now, hold up there for just a second. Because at this point in time, as we've just seen, Peter doesn't believe either. None of them do. Their salvation doesn't come until after the resurrection. And yet, when considering them... And the kingdom that has been assigned to them by him in the same manner that it was assigned to him by the Father. He looks at him and says, there's some of you who don't believe. Now, why doesn't he say none of you believe? Because none of them believe. Because when Jesus Christ says, I'll pray for you. It's a completely different scenario than when the preacher prays for you. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, okay, now if we had any concept about the entourage, that has been officially removed by the context. Now we're just talking to the twelve, of which eleven currently do not believe but will and one that never will this is the sieve and not a pebble drops to the ground it's all going to be in one place or the other he said to the twelve do you want to go away as well and Simon Peter A man who is not currently born again says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Man, I'm telling you what, the more and more you understand about Scripture, the more and more you get happy at all the wrong places. Man, that, that statement, when, when I understand that Peter here is not born again, and yet makes this statement to Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now see, if you have this idea in your mind that Peter's already born again, and we know he isn't because of what is said in John chapter 14 through 16. But if you mistakenly believe that Peter is already born again, 
then this looks a very different way than how it actually looks. How it actually looks is a man that's not born again. And it's saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? What you see is a picture of desperation. He's not saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the one. What he's doing is looking around like, I mean, you understand that this would be the equivalent of like being at a, this would like be like, from a societal level, this would be like being at a rock concert or a football game, like a big game. Um, you know, we got 30,000 people there, and then man, the lightning strikes and the referee blows the whistle and says it's over, and everybody just and you've paid all the money for the best seat in the house, and here's Peter and twenty five thousand people just went whoa, except for it wasn't because of a technicality. It was because they thought they were going to get something that they didn't get. And so they showed up thinking, here's this prophet, here's this possible Messiah, and he's, we have expectation he's going to deliver this, 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 and this. And he gets up there and says, eat me. Literally. That's literally what he says. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Without it, there's no salvation. And you know what they said? I'm out. I'm out. And he looks at them and says, you take offense. And here you have a man that's not yet saved. And this is the beautiful part about it. Don't get me. This is, this is the good stuff. Man, this is the point when God starts singing psalms over a reprobate people. This is where he starts sifting them. Which side of the sieve are you going to come out on? This is you take offense at this. And a man not out of not out of new creation not out of new birth not out of enlightenment going yeah you're the one but instead out of depraved desperation a man who is not born again looked at him and said lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So let me ask you something today. I mean, we don't even begin. I mean, I'm, out of I'm already out of time. We don't even have time to go back to John where you go, well, how does Peter do that? And Jesus says, well, it's because the Spirit that will be in you is already with you. Are you hungry for Christ? Desperation is a beautiful thing, friend. Don't, don't be scared of desperation. Desperation is excellent. It is excellent. Be desperate. Be desperate for Christ. Be desperate, man. He was. He's like, where else are we going to go? 
And Jesus answered them. Now I want you to have this in the back of your mind. Remember where we've been. As was assigned to me, so I assigned to you. Jesus answered them. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Well, all right, I'm done. you're going to understand and, and you can see it um, in, in Mark if you want to look there in your own time I'm not going to go there today if you want to look in Mark chapter 14 and verse 66 through 72 you want to see what Christ was doing with Peter And he looked at him, and you know, Peter, he was such a tough guy, right? Man, I'll go, I'll die for you, I'll go with you to the. And Jesus said, No, you won't. No, you won't. As a matter of fact, before the cock crows, which basically means before morning comes, um, you know, you're going to deny me three times. And of course, we know that Peter did that. There's a lot of reasons for it, mainly because Peter was scared for his own life. It's what Satan accused Job before God. He said, you know, skin for skin, if you'll let me touch him, he'll betray you. And sure enough, when he sieved Peter and his own life was on the line, Peter betrayed him. He said, I don't know him. He spit on the ground and cursed it three times in a row. You guys know the narrative, the cock crowed, and the realization of what Christ had said to Peter came full force with all of its weight upon him. And, and Peter was broken and when Christ rose again, I mean, can you imagine just for a moment the weight that would have been on Peter when Christ rose again? This guy just proved himself to be the great I am. And I spat and cursed and said, I do not know him. Now, if you take Scripture for what it actually says, what you'll find is that God is both, He is the kindest, gentlest, most merciful being that has ever been or ever will be. What you'll also find is He is the most violent being that ever will be. And man, if you curse and spit and claim you don't know him, bad deal. And Jesus comes to Peter at the side of the Sea of Galilee. And man, if you want to talk about a scenario where you see the reality of the Spirit with you that's not yet in you. Well, at this point, no. At this point, it is in him. 
man, Peter sees him in, in, in spite of the, the, the threat that is ve- the danger that is very real. He just you know he pulls off his, he pulls off his robe, he just dives out of the boat into the sea and he swims to the shore. He gets to him as, as fast as he can. And of course Christ has got you know, he's got the buffet laid out, there's fish and he pulls him to the side. He just lays it to him and says, Peter, I want to know something. Do you love me? And fascinating piece of text. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I, you know that I love you. And, and they're, 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 it's, it's crazy. They're using different words for love and they're using different words for no. And they're just back and forth and back and forth. And it's head knowledge and it's kind of warm, fuzzy love and back and forth and back and forth. And they get right down to it at the end. And Jesus asked him a third time and Peter he says, man, he says, you, you know, and he, he, he changes the frame of the conversation. He says, you gnosko, you know intimately that I love you, and it's basically because you loved me. You go, well, man, if that's the case, why, why, did Peter, why did Peter go through what he went through? Why did the Lord put him through that? Why did he look at Satan when Satan demanded to sift him and say, man, I'll pray for you? The answer is nothing less than the fact that he did it because Christ loved Peter. If you know anything about church history, you'll know the way that Peter died. And when Peter died, he was given an an option and the option was that he could die quickly for his faith or he could be crucified for his faith and all he would have to do to die quickly basically to be beheaded would be to renounce Christ and unlike the first time he didn't spit on the ground And he said, nope, won't do it. And they said, well, it's not even going to be about you. How about this? You can renounce Christ and we will put you and your wife to death quickly. Or you can watch her be crucified. And history would record that after watching his wife be crucified, which is an hours, if not days long event, then when asked one more time whether or not he would renounce Christ, he told them that he did not deserve to die in the same way that his Lord had died, so turn the cross upside down, which if you know anything about crucifixion is going to ensure that you live way longer than what you would have otherwise. the total time in absolute excruciating agony. Christ did what was necessary for Peter. He engineered the point of Peter's failure when Peter's reputation and his pride was on the line, but his eternal soul wasn't. In order that when Peter's eternal soul was on the line, he wouldn't.
Now there it is from the microscopic view of what it looks like for an individual to be sieved. The reality is, is even though the scripture doesn't talk about it, Judas got sieved too. And he went into the opposite batch that Peter went into. In Amos, the Lord is sieving a nation. Most of them are going into the fire. The real question for us today is not whether or not that was good. In three minutes, I can make an argument out of the text that any man he burns deserves to burn. It's not a question about whether or not that was good. The question is whether or not you're good with it. That's the question. Man, we're way late. I'll end with Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it people of old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are invisible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. And now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Are you sure? That's the question. Are you sure? I pray that we are. I pray that we can look at him and say, where else would we go? Thanks for your patience this morning. Let's pray.